0: hey this is adam from toronto and i support creative control because vish is full stop one of the best arts interviewers in canada or anywhere in the world really he approaches every episode like he's known the artist for years creating a conversational atmosphere that gets straight to the heart of the work no one else in podcasting gets it quite right like he does with a mixture of meticulous research wise artistic insights and well-humored personal connections i proudly support vish and creative control on patreon you should too
2: To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash creativecontrol today. Nathan Salzberg is a musician and music scholar who hails from the state of Kentucky and is currently based there in a community called Skylight. The curator of the Allen Lomax Archive at the Association for Cultural Equity, Salzberg has been working on digitizing the recordings and works of Lomax for almost 20 years. In 2016, he began writing and adapting songs based in and exploring his Jewish faith, which has culminated in a beautiful new album featuring contributions by his wife, Joan Shelley, and friends like Will Oldham, James Elkington, and Spencer Tweedy, among others. The record is called Psalms. It's available worldwide on August 20th, 2021, via No Quarter, and it prompted Nathan and I to have a nice chat about living in Kentucky, his work for the Alan Lomax Archive, and the legacy of the late noted documentarian. Working at Will Oldham's house... Reconnecting with Judaism and the story behind Psalms, why the late David Berman's work is so significant for Jewish creativity, working on new music with Joan Shelley, future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network, with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it, and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com/slash creative control, with additional support. From Blackbird Music, a well-stocked record store with locations in Edmonton and Calgary, Alberta, and friendly staff who will happily help you source special orders for hard-to-find titles, which you can learn more about at their website, blackbird.ca, plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario. And Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is the 630th episode of Creative Control featuring the lovely and talented Nathan Salzberg with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi Nathan, how you doing? Hi Vish, doing well, thank you. It's nice to have you on the show. Uh, First of all, where in the world are you today? Uh, I am phoning in from my home in
0: Skylight, Kentucky, which is just outside of the city of Louisville, Kentucky.
2: Nice. Skylight is an interesting name. How long has it had the names? I think of skylights as relatively recent inventions. I'm by recent, I mean a hundred years old, maybe. But is, do you know what I mean? Do you know what? Do, do, what is the connotation for you? What, why is it called skylight? I do know what you mean. Actually, there's a book called Kentucky
0: Place Names that has skylight in it, but it doesn't give the provenance of the name. I think it's it's been it's been skylight since the 1880s. And I think it has to do, I can't confirm this, but with uh, we're Louisville is in a valley, in a river valley, the Ohio River Valley. And skylight Uh is, uh, as you move east into the county of Oldham County and you you, you gain the slightest bit of elevation. But I think there's something about being in skylight where the the sky opens up a little bit more. You're out of the, you know, the, the very modest depths of the valley that. Louisville, you know, the, the conurbation inhabits. I see. I think that has something to do with it. I don't know. But it is, we're actually, theoretically, in the, the city of Goshen, and the Skylight Post Office has been gone since the 19-teens or something. But we love the name so much that we have, there's still a sign that says Skylight as you enter our area, so we, we hold on to it fairly, fairly intensely. I see. We so there's, very, uh,
2: I see. Okay, so there have been some nominal shifts, so to speak, but I will say also, now that you've described it and I've thought about it more, first of all, I apologize if I insensitively connected it to a skylight in a roof of any kind, a car. I guess in a car it's called a sunroof. There's a skylight. Or moonroof. Or moonroof. Yeah, that's weird. It depends on the time of day. They've made a whole thing, and it depends on what time of day it is. Is it a moonroof or a sun? Anyway, skylight is actually, now that you've described it, it's a beautiful idea. It's a beautiful name. So I understand why you would... We would hang on to it, I guess. How long have you been in that area, actually?
0: Well, I, I've lived most of my life in the in, in Louisville proper from the ages of 4 to 18 and in the ages of 29 till now. I'm 43 now. But my wife, Joan, and her mother bought this place, which is a former tree farm um, that sort of grew over over 15 or so years, bought it uh, maybe seven years ago. And it luckily is just beyond the reaches of... Exurban urban development, or at least the, I think the desires or the abilities of the ex-urban developers. So um, they were able to get it at a good price and it's on 40 acres. It's really, it's very phenomenally beautiful and it's cool because there's still some visual sense of the tree farm itself. You know, there are long rows of ginkgos, long rows of various walnuts and oaks, Hmm. lots of strange ornamentals, but lots of things are grown over. So there is sort of a sense of a secret garden. Um, And we were able, I've sort of lived here full time the past two years. And we were able to, you know, we were able to COVID here, which was a massive, massive gift.
2: Yeah. It's a beautiful part of the country. I've been to Kentucky uh, at least once and into Louisville and uh, Lexington, I guess. Uh, I was on a tour so those names stick out for me, but I, I remember thinking it was a lovely part of the country. So I, I can understand why you'd, you'd you'd stay. Has anything ever come close to compelling you to leaving, moving somewhere else?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, certainly the political situation in the state is a cause for severe hand wringing and self reflection. I mean, I've imagined, uh, you know, I've imagined moving to a civilized country like Canada. Imagine moving to Scotland. Um, yeah. Imagine you know, split places that slightly reflect my progressive politics a little bit better, and you know, obviously aren't failed states entirely like the state of Kentucky is. Um, though having said that, we have a Democratic governor by the by the absolute grace of God, he just managed to kind of squeeze by this just horrific. I mean, he, the, our old Republican governor was he he offended and insulted. everyone he possibly could in the state. And it's the the only guy that this democratic governor could have beat was the old governor. So thank God he was in charge during COVID because otherwise he would have had, it just would have been scorched earth. Like it was in places like Tennessee and Missouri and all the other states around us. And, you know, that being said, Kentucky is closest thing that I have to a home and we have lots of wonderful friends here and family here. And, you know, there's the sense that one needs to make commitments to places like this, you know, electoral commitments, social commitments, cultural commitments, the places that raised us. And, you know, it's important to not cut and run and try to make our contributions as best we can here. That being said, you know, we've got a baby now and in the years to come, who knows where we'll find ourselves. But yeah, uh,
2: for now, it's, it's definitely home. It's true. Having children can uh, make you move to a place that feels better. But then in my own experience, having moved from Ontario to Alberta in the last year or so, you realize it's kind of bad everywhere. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> and you've got Mitch McConnell. Is that your guy, the senator there? Uh...
0: Oh, yeah. Yes, indeed. And we also have Rand Paul, who's much different and equally just abominable. I mean, it, it really is. It. I mean, there's nothing to be said for it. We have a really, there's a really great young African-American state representative named Charles Booker. Yeah. Who, is who ran and and you know very slightly came up short in the Democratic primary last year to run against Mitch McConnell in the general Senate election, and he is running in 2022 against Rand Paul, and he probably has no chance, but it is exciting to see an unabashed progressive candidate running in the state. You know, which Kentucky used to be for many many years and not so long ago, yeah. a Democratic state. I mean, you know, in the eastern part of the state, the you know, unionism was certainly a Tenet, if not a reality, people felt strongly about organized labor. There was a history of that in the mining regions of the East and the West. And, um, you know, it's just been just the cultural stuff that's turned Kentucky more red. There's lots of people they say who, if everyone voted in Kentucky, we might actually still be a democratic state, but lots of folks don't vote. So the hope is Charles Booker can sort of inspire some younger generations and some disenfranchised people in the states to, to get involved. But I certainly don't have my hopes up.
2: I know it is frustrating for you as a, a parent and as a citizen. Is it more embarrassing than frustrating to know that Rand Paul, Mitch McConnell are your representatives? Does that make sense? I know it must I don't know how to quantify which would be worse, the embarrassment or the life and death <laughs> decision making, policy making, but they seem like embarrassing people uh to me. Particularly I think Rand Paul is particularly embarrassing and and Mitch McConnell seems particularly evil. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah. I, mean, I think the
0: embarrassment is really to the, the species less and less to, uh, you know, the, 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 the Kentuckian in me. I'm embarrassed for, of them as a human being, as an ethical yeah. human being acting in the world and thinking and feeling in the world. And, you know, a lot of people obviously have a lot of harsh words to say about. Kentuckians themselves, who have consistently voted these people into office. I mean, McConnell's been in office since the early '80s. It's just incredible. But he, you know, he knows how to work the levers of power. He knows how to grease the hands that need greasing in the state. And uh, you know, he's done enough to make people think that he's made contributions to the state and made people's lives better, which I don't think, you know, by any reasonable metric can be confirmed. But people feel that way, and it's hard to argue with that. But you yeah. know, the fact is, is that but disenfranchisement in the state is real. And so when people sort of blame Kentuckians for voting against their interests, I think it's much more complicated than that because there are so many people in the state who have just given up entirely. And we do remain Mm -hmm. one of the poorest and least healthy, least educated States in the union. And, um, you know, there's something, and I think a lot of people were inclined to sort of give in or indulge the, you know, hillbilly stereotype to explain those realities as opposed to very, you know, Serious, you know, the realities of extractive industry like coal mining and just insane privatization and and uh, you know disinvestment in, in in social welfare that comes in a state like ours. Yeah. You know, after these years of Republican rule, so that you probably didn't expect that kind of soapboxing, but that's my that's my tip. no no
2: no. I mean, I asked the questions, so soapbox away. Frankly, now I, I do. I am curious about how this context and that atmosphere informs your work. But before we get to that, your work is a bit complicated to explain. We are speaking today ostensibly because you have a new record coming out. But my sense of you is that you don't just make music and and make records. You do different things. And if if I'm wrong on that front, please correct me. But within that, what do you actually do in Kentucky, if you will? Nathan, I know you're a dad. Congratulations. You're a, a relatively new dad. I know that like I say, <laughs> I know you're a musician. How would you characterize what it is you do, so to speak?
0: Uh, that is a good question. I do different things, as you said. I moved back to Kentucky from New York City in 2007 because I had worked for seven years from 2000 to 2007 at the office of an organization called the Association for Cultural Equity, which was Alan Lomax's, the, the great American folklorist. And documentarian, Alan Lomax's nonprofit research center, which he had chartered in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And he was sick and retired come the time I started working as an admin assistant, making coffee and going to the post office in 2000. I just kind of lucked into the job via an um, internship at the Woody Guthrie Archive that lasted two oh, days. Wow. Oh, wow. Um, so it was only two it, days. It was, I see. Sorry. It was two days, yeah. Well, I, I I really just wrote them a letter. I'd moved to New York, I'd been there a couple of months after I graduated from college and sent the Woody Guthrie Archive a letter and said I'd love to volunteer. They had me by and they said, you know, the Alan Lomax archive is, is hiring. Um, and I just sent them a letter. I mean, I know I I still virtually have no technical, you know, official technical bona fides or academic <laughs> bona fides. I was just a, just just a fan and kind of learned as I went. And I started, you know, doing just the most menial labor. It was at a time when the Lomax material, which comprised this thing called the Alan Lomax Archive, was being digitized by Alan's daughter, his only child, Anna Lomax, Mm -hmm. who was a visionary folklorist and ethnomusicologist in her own right. The idea was that... So Alan Lomax and his father, John Lomax, made all of these recordings in the 30s and 40s under the auspices of the Library of Congress, what they called then the Archive of American Folk Song. Mm -hmm. And Lomax left the employ of the library in 1944 or so, and then everything that he recorded independently, so from 1946 on through 1991 when he made his last recordings, all of that material was part of his independent archive. So over the sort of early 2000s, Anna Lomax raised money to digitize all of his material, and then it was all accessioned by the Library of Congress, by the archive there. So all the Lomax stuff became sort of united there in D.C. So... Sorry, my wife is here at the door. That's okay. Oh, I'm grabbing the dog. Yeah, she's getting the dog. Go, dog. See you, Dwight. Sorry, the dog's being picked up. I'm the dog the dog's name is Dwight? It's Dwight, Dwight Lightning, yeah.
2: Oh nice. That's- they're going to they're going to visit Joan's mom, so he's going
0: over there to hang with the other dog. Sorry about that. I,
2: no, it's fine. And just I mean, your wife, by the way, is is someone we would know, right? I guess it depends on who's listening. But yeah, her name is Joan Shelley. <laughs> she is a prominent musician. Joan is a musician in her own right that people might know. Is what I was going for. That that was a weird way of. We all know your wife. Everyone knows who your wife is. That was yeah. a weird way of framing that. I'm sorry, but yes, Joan. Shelley. that sounds that sounds like a like a profound insult.
0: Actually, in the you know, older, like shouted in
2: the tavern.
0: Well yeah. known. Yes, Joan, Joan Shelley is her name. <laughs> Joan yeah. Shelley, she's yes. she's definitely more in her own. She is a musician more in her own right. She has more of a right to be called a musician, I think, than I do in that sense. She's more of a, of a, um, well, I don't know. I don't know why I would make that distinction. But yes, in her own right, she is a musician. Right.
2: Just, just, just clarifying that since uh, it came up. So thank you for explaining that. But any, you were <laughs> you were okay. saying about the uh, digitization of the archive, I believe.
0: Yes. And I realize this is very complicated and maybe folks are turning this off or skipping ahead by the (laughs) 30 second, you know, the little cursor thing. But um, it's important to say all this because it gives a sense of what I do and what we do. So by 2004, the Library of Congress assumed control over all the original Lomax recordings. And that also includes photographs and video and film work and everything by and large that I had to work with. At this point, I was working on getting all of our digitized material up online Answering a lot of research queries. I was working with various record labels to do some reissue projects. This is, you know, mid 2000s, late 2000s. Everything was more or less everything I was working with was digitized. So I loaded up hard drives and moved back to Louisville, where I was able to live and work remotely and have done since. And in that time, we've been able to work more closely with our friends at the Library of Congress, the American Folklife Center there, to digitize some of the earlier Lomax recordings and make those available online. So just a few months ago, we launched a new site called the LDA, Lomax Digital Archive, which is nearly all of Alan Lomax's recordings and photographs from 1946 to 1991 and increasingly over the coming months and years some of the bigger collections from the 30s and 40s that he and his father John Lomax did so that includes currently available um, from that period is the 70-some hours of Kentucky recordings they made between 33 and 42, the uh, 37 hours of recordings they made in Mississippi between 33 and 42, in addition to the later Kentucky and Mississippi stuff that Alan did in the 50s and 40s and 50s and 60s. And we're working on a South Carolina collection. We're hoping we'll get some money from the National Endowment for the Humanities this fall to do some other big collections like Texas and Florida. Yeah. And over time, hopefully in the next few years, we'll start to winnow away at the smaller stuff too. I mean, he recorded in You know, New Hampshire and Maine and Ohio and Indiana and stuff that people aren't really familiar with, and it'd be fun to make that stuff available too. So, apart from sort of curating that material, Making sure all the catalogs are up to snuff and all the discrete items are identified correctly. We work with regional archives to kind of return this stuff to the places it came from. So, hmm. and I should say too, you know, the, the stuff that Alan recorded from the 40s on, he was all over Western Europe. He was in the British Isles. He was in Morocco. He went to Russia for a few weeks in 64. Um, there's lots of exciting material that is definitely outside of kind of the fantasy or the romantic image of him just working in sort of the rural South. Um, yeah. And so a lot of that material, all of that's currently available. Online, so that's sort of what I do for the Lomax Archive, and I try to do you know post Instagram things occasionally.
2: (laughs) So, so if I may, if I may interject just briefly, like so, in being fully immersed in the work of Alan Lomax, what is your takeaway about his motivation for that work? He was an archivist, he was a, a you know a cultural capturer, I suppose. You know, he realized that the things that were happening should be documented. So my questions are sort of twofold. Do you have a sense of what his motivations and, and his family's motivations are to maintain not only his legacy, but for him, I guess what I'm getting at is, do you have a sense of what he, why he did what he did? And within that, does it inform what you do and how you do things now in your own work or in working with others? Sorry, was that convoluted? I hope that was clear. No,
0: no, no, I understand. I mean, Alan... Um, I won't speak about John Lomax because he is extremely complicated and of course you have to bring in all of this just the white supremacy that reigned supreme um, sorry, it's sort of ugly way to put it but you so know, that's, the reality that's John, of white supremacy J- in the South
2: right, and John was Alan's father
0: that's right, and he right. sort of he started this work and I mean, he started actually in the teens collecting cowboy, or really the aughts collecting cowboy songs when he was a younger man but Alan, the, the interesting thing is that so John really approached it from a very kind of uh uh, from a romantic sense of remembering when he was a boy in rural Bosque County, Texas in the 1880s, 70s and 80s, remembering like that. And he was not a raving racist, but he did, of course, like there was no way around it. I mean, he... Fundamentally saw, I think, African Americans as not entirely capable of bearing the burdens of full citizenship, say, but Mm -hmm. loved the music. I mean, he cared deeply about African American music and was interested and was dedicated to preserving it. People will argue... So I try not to talk about John Lomax because he is especially (laughs) – I could go on and on, but that's not the point. Allen, interestingly, was totally the opposite politically. I mean he went to Harvard in 32 where there was a lot of activity around Bloody Harlan, the strikes in Harlan County, Kentucky, um, where there was an ultimately unsuccessful drive, unionization drive against the the coal bosses. And he became radicalized then, and he and his father – for years were really at loggerheads politically. And Alan was always a progressive. And I, what he saw fundamentally from a very young age, and he started recording with his dad when he was 17 and 18, was that he what the work they were doing was doing was, give, was giving a voice to the voiceless. I mean, the idea was that all these people were basically shut out of the – the communication system, you know, the, the, the cultural conversation and their contributions to the American identity and American culture were not being, I mean, certainly not being in, included in the conversation, not being respected, not being even, you know, able. weren't able to access them in any meaningful way. So what they were doing, the documentation was not just about documentation and depositing at the Library of Congress, but about access. And also about, Alan was really interested in, you know, the idea of, of, Uh, Improving Morale and letting people know this stuff is valuable and come the 50s and 60s when he had the opportunity to do so he would play back the recordings that he made for folks and as he would say in his kind of overblown way he would also you know frequently speak in hyperbolic terms but you know they heard that what they were doing was as good as anything on the radio and he called that sort of awkwardly cultural feedback, hmm. but it made sense. You know, it was, it was morale boosting work. And, you know, he was really interested after many years of the documentation to find a way to find ways to involve people in the communities with that material. I mean, in the sixties, he was really keen on, you know, assisting younger black folklorists to re-engage with the material um, in the communities where they came from or the expressive traditions in the communities where they came from and use, some of the work that the Lemaxes had done as a basis of new work, led by Black folklorists and ethnomusicologists and investigators, and really to build up, you know, from the from the community level, sites and nodes of in cultural engagements and um, and study. And and fundamentally excitement in this stuff, you know, saying that this is as valuable, certainly more valuable in Allen's eyes than anything that like the, you know, the culture industries, industrial culture was spitting out. And he was working at a time when the culture industries were really increasing in their reach and power. I mean, of course, come the late 1930s, phonographic records had already been, you know, a mass market product for over 20 years, but he was really keen on trying to get and 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 John in particular, you know his ideal was that he needed to go out and collect specifically black folklore, black folk song before the radio somehow, you know, sullied it somehow, like watered it down, distilled it. But Alan had a more keen they, so the, sense. There, there,
2: there was an interest or, or or a cognizance about commodification then, even then, and and within that, like the, I know that by by circumstance there. There were a lot of field recordings, which meant, you know, not optimal fidelity, not optimal sound. But that always made me think they had, the Lomaxes had a particular interest in sort of, I don't want to say verite, but that authentic sound, the the in-the-moment expression. Am I reading too much into their aesthetic choices there? That's where I'm kind of, because I've grown up admiring Alan Lomax and what he did, I think, for American culture by capturing these things that no one else was capturing but it sounds, and by, by what you're saying, I think it was in the face of mainstream culture.
0: Is that fair? It was in the face of mainstream culture that was an you know stated goal for both. I mean, John, but also for Alan because he was working at a time. I mean, John died in '48, so Alan was around to see yeah. um, you know really ramping up of sort of mass market media. I mean, John was around to see it too, but. Alan embraced new technology. I mean, he embraced the tape machine. He embraced the long-playing record. He was really active in radio in the 1940s. I mean, he saw instead of you know, as the conservatives would put it, standing astride history and yelling stop. He saw himself taking advantage of all these technologies at the service of the folk, so to speak. But yeah, I mean, he definitely approached what he did, and Alan and John too, from a sense of preserving authentic culture, which is fraught in any number of ways. Luckily, Alan came to realize, and fairly young, that all culture is synthetic, that there is no authentic culture. And the idea of trying to preserve the purity of any sort of cultural expression is fundamentally, you know, is, is based totally in romanticism and usually some kind of weird at right. bottom, at least crypto racism, you know, um, right. or crypto chauvinism. So yeah, he was, and you know, he wasn't, he wasn't afraid. It's funny that he gets a bad rap for somehow that his aesthetic decisions of who to record, somehow reflect a demand for purity that like commercial records in the twenties and thirties don't that somehow when people like all the hillbillies and, you know, rural African-Americans and urban African-Americans too, were putting quote unquote folk music on commercial records in the twenties and thirties that because they had the profit motive, somehow those performances are more authentic than what Allen did. But, mm-hmm. And it's true, he came to sort of serve as more of like a record producer in the 1950s when he was recording for Atlantic and making films in the 80s for PBS. He was really like served as a producer. I mean, he was yeah. making decisions about what to include. But everyone does that. And fundamentally, what he did was lay the groundwork for all manner of public folklorists and ethnic musicologists and documentarians to come in and do much more, I think, much deeper and more nimble work than he was able. I mean, he just went here and there and here and there, just like breezing through, making. Dozens of recordings, you know, every day from community to community, community, you know, just going as fast as he, not as fast as he could, but he just was, it's insane the capacity that he had to do the work that he did over so many years. I mean, one of those trips, if you or I did it, we would say, you know, okay, we made our contribution. I can retire. But he just did it again and again and again. I mean, just the sheer volume of stuff he recorded, it's just, it's mind numbing.
2: So there's a, there's the musical aesthetic, there's the work ethic there. You are fully, it seems to me, among the people, few people in the world, maybe, fully immersed in this kind of work that the Lomaxes did. So how... I I go back to, I guess, the second half of my last question. How, or if at all, does that stuff inform you in your cultural work? Because I can't help but think it does, whether subconsciously or not, whether it's overt or not. But I think of your work and your trajectory and... Well, no, I'll leave it to you. Do you see parallels? Do you see ways that your immersion in the work of the Lomaxes is kind of explored in your own work, I suppose?
0: I feel like I'm maybe least equipped to, to make that call. I mean, I'm sh- <laughs> Obviously, there are, there are many influences of things that I've listened to and things that I've enjoyed and, and ways that I've thought about the Lomaxes material and also just you know sort of vernacular music in the Americas and elsewhere over the past 20 years. 20 odd years while I've been doing this stuff professionally. And and no doubt that's reflected in the music that I make, but I did sort of make a concerted effort. Well, I'm not concerted, but there were a number of years when I first started working at the archive between about 2000 and 2005 or six that I sort of stopped playing music. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't making really any good music before then anyway, Um, but I sort of stopped playing with the intention of becoming a better listener and sort of devoting myself to listening to what, learning how to be a listener to the music of that, Alan and John recorded. And again, you know, sort of non-commercial music in, in general. And it's it's funny, you know, a lot of people who get into this stuff, they if they play music, they are keen to replicate it. I mean, we think about, uh, certainly in the American idiom, I mean, the folk revival of the 50s and on, was really about trying to sort of, you know, slavishly recreate these performances as best they could, you know, and down to wearing the dungarees, you know, that Tom Ashley might have worn when he made his yeah. record in 1928. And that's never really attracted me. There's a, certainly there's a worth in that, and some amazing records were made, wonderful music, and very talented performers made that music for many years in America. I mean, of course, there's if Bob Dylan, you might argue, was one of those figures. Um, yeah, but that was yeah. never something of interest to me. And I, I, I think, in some ways. The music I made has kind of been a, a, an effort to work harder to make those, to, to synthesize my interest in this music into something that feels mine, as opposed to trying to replicate this stuff and find my voice in it, if that makes sense. you know, try It does. To
2: take- it does. No, it does, because with the Lomaxes as well, because like I said, I grew up really admiring the Lomaxes every time I came across their name. And learn more about what Alan did in particular. I was I was like, that's cool. And then into university, when you're studying music and pop culture, you're like, oh my god, we have this rich archive of material because of this guy's instincts and being in the right place at the right time and making himself available, and you know, going into various places that no one else was going into to capture these stories and expressions. But then, as the years have gone on, uh, you know, people start to bring up terms like cultural appropriation, exploitation, like where is the line there? You're getting into replication as well. I mean, you invoke some figures there, including Bob Dylan, who became known initially as an imitator of some of these people that have been captured by the Lomaxes. So I get what you're saying. I feel like there's a lot of complications swimming around in this celebration, if you will. Because I feel like, personally, my take, I think the Lomax's Alan, anyway, was celebrating these cultures, these marginalized cultures on some level, by trying to document them. I think his impulse was, this is important. I think in your own work, you, you, you sort of made a comment that in the mid two thousand or 2005 or something, you gave up <laughs> because you didn't think you were doing anything important. Um, but that's maybe probably you being hard on yourself, but probably also maybe recognizing you didn't have your own voice yet. Is that fair? You didn't. You felt like maybe you were copying people, and this wasn't satisfying on some level.
0: There was just no satisfaction in general. I mean, the music that I was making, you know, totally personally in the early two thousands was just yeah, it, it wasn't good, and I knew it wasn't good, and I certainly wasn't going to be trying to pursue it. Also because I felt super satisfied by my role at the Lumex Archive, which then was. Overseeing this series of CDs that we did on Rounder Records, you know, in the kind of last gasp era of CD issues, there was a hundred right. some CDs that we managed to issue through Rounder. Just, I mean, things that probably sold five or six copies in some cases. Um, you know, Christmas songs from the Caribbean. I mean, amazing stuff, <laughs> but just things that no one was buying. They would all just be sent immediately to like fifteen Barnes and Nobles, and they just sort of considered it done. You know, I, um,
2: I had, I had, I had some of those. I think my wife had some of those. I, I can picture them in my c d collection in the basement, so so one of us had those. I know what you're talking about just to just to double back on it wasn't good. The music you were making wasn't good, and maybe following what I was trying to discuss there, when you say not good, do you mean not distinctive That's where I'm coming from like I'm trying to figure out what what makes someone think that what they're doing isn't good. I have a sense of it like i like like I know if I've made something and it if I've made two things, I know why one is better than the other. But can yeah. you home in on that? What was it not? Was it just not distinctive enough or was it simply too rudimentary? Like why wasn't it good, so to speak?
0: Yes, I think that the rudimentary adjective applies here. I think what was happening though is that I was ex- <laughs> I mean I can't I can't overstate this and it still happens. I and this is really the greatest gift of my life. I mean I every single day was discovering something that if it didn't blow my mind, at least made me really excited, you know a performance that I hadn't considered, an artist I hadn't considered, a place in the world that was making music that had a tradition of music that I hadn't considered. And I was getting to do this, and I still get to do it. I'm on paternity leave right now, but when that's over, you know, it happens in my work, and I get paid, not much, but I get paid to do that, to have these experiences. And that was happening at a time when I knew much less than I know now about, you know, vernacular traditional music. So I really was getting my mind blown much more frequently. At the same time, I was trying to find some kind of voice as a musician. Actually, it, Between about 2002 and 2005, I think I just gave up playing music altogether because I was getting my mind blown so frequently by the experience of being a listener, working in the Lomax archive, that I really, my desire to make music was, you know, just sort of withered, not unhappily so, but what I was doing was unsatisfactory because of just the sheer volume of quality music that I was experiencing all the time. So when I did start doing it again in 2005, 2006, as a solo guitar player, I think I I did, as you said earlier, I was able to start synthesizing some of my interests and some of the things that I gleaned as a listener into something that did feel like my own music. And At the time, you know, it was very much sort of in the the guitar soli kind of... World with with you know I was I, I around the same time I got started getting really interested in in the English folk revival the English and Scottish folk revival which I think made much more exciting music than the American folk revival for a number of reasons but once I started putting some of these pieces together and sort of just getting a sense of the you know the the shared influence both domestically between say African American and and white traditions and Uh, English and Irish and Scottish music and its influence and, you know, synthesis with American traditions and going back and forth across pollination across the ocean. A lot of this stuff just really excited me to try my hand at trying to distill a lot of this stuff into something that felt like mine. And I felt like over the, you know, intervening years, I've been able to, at least for myself, feel like I've, I've managed that satisfactorily.
2: Yeah. Forgive my ignorance here, but I'm just curious uh, uh, what era constitutes the English Scottish folk revival is it like fairport convention kind of era or is there a different one
0: it starts a little earlier in england i mean it starts kind of in the 19 i mean it's it's hard to say because there were you know antiquarians collecting folk songs many hundreds of years ago and it sort of picked up in the 1890s in the victorian era And then people started hearing folk songs over the BBC in the 1940s, though a lot of them were sort of, um, you know, set to chamber music arrangements. But there actually were recordings being made in the 40s of traditional singers in England and broadcast over a show called Country Life. But really in the 1950s and 60s, sort of the same here. And, you know, Alan Lomax had no small part in that. I mean, uh, in England with folks like A.L. Lloyd and Ewan McCall and Shirley Collins, you know, he was active in presenting traditional music in England over the BBC and again blowing folks' minds who didn't know this stuff existed. And the same thing happened in Scotland. And you can really trace it to actually 70 years ago this year, something called the Edinburgh People's Festival Cayley, which took place in August of 1951, mm. which was the first time there's a you know wonderful radical poet, translator, folklorist uh, researcher, Hamish Henderson, who was kind of the Alan Lomax of, of Scotland, though I think a much more genial guy in a lot of ways. But they put together this show during the, the first Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and uh, it was the first time that urban audiences saw traditional singers, you know, Gaelic singers, um, folks from the Outer Hebrides, and, you know, the singing of a fish wife named Jessie Murray from Bucky. I mean, this really, you know, traditional singing they had never known existed Really blew folks' minds, and I think you can trace the Scottish folk revival to that moment. I think the thing, and then of course, Fairport Convention, C.I. Span, and all of them come the sixties and seventies. I think their music is maybe more interesting than the American versions because they were Americans were trying to recreate the tunes that they had heard, say, on seventy-eight RPM records, like from Harry Smith's anthology, yeah. or the tunes that they had heard in Lomax recordings. Whereas a lot of a lot of the English folk songs not all of them by any means, but they were being collected textually long before there was the possibility of recording them orally. Right. So folks like Martin Carthy and Dick Aachen and Richard Thompson and Shirley Collins, I mean, a lot of, and Dolly Collins, certainly, you know, a lot of them were making up new arrangements using interesting instruments and, you know, interesting modes and idioms that they could bring to bear because they had so much more room. They weren't tied down to the tunes that they had heard off of records. So that's, I think that's why that stuff is a little more exciting to me.
2: Well, I appreciate that summarization. And uh, so, yes, well before the Fairport Convention, to my point. Again, forgive my ignorance. Uh, <laughs> thank you. No, you're good. <laughs> thank you for illuminating uh, those things for, for me and for people listening. So, okay, we have kind of captured you in, in the sense that you seem to be interested in historical works. You seem to be interested in community building, so to speak, or... Or creating music as part of a community, I feel like this could be a nice segue into our discussion of your new record, Psalms, because I think it captures a couple of those strains uh, or threads in your work. Do you di- first of all do you dispute what I'm positing here? <laughs> no. Okay. So there is a there's a, an amazing array of players on this record, so I want to get to that um, as well, but. First of all, let's, let's just begin with why. Uh, this is a classic question in journalism. Nathan, why did you make this record? What compelled you to do it? Hmm. I should have an easy answer to this question.
0: <laughs> I, I was hungry for... Well, first of all, I was hungry for some kind of Jewish engagement. I grew up in a synagogue here in Louisville. I went to a Jewish summer camp. I felt for many years very I was a Jewish studies minor in college. I, I felt very uh, plugged into thinking of myself and thinking as a Jew, as a, you know as a, a Jew engaging with Jewish stuff in the world. And I had really lost that over the time I lived in New York and, and moving back to Louisville. And really, I think the, the, the point of Genesis was in 2007 or eight, when I moved home, I was working out of Will Oldham's house. He gave me a um, just like gave me a desk. Let me set up a desk in a back room in his house because I needed a place to work. And um, one day he brought a CDR that he had written Jewish jams on, and it was an album made by two guys who, at the time, were observing Orthodox Jews. Their names are Jonathan Harkham and David Asher Brook, mm-hmm. and they had made this incredibly beautiful, very moving record of. Traditional liturgical hymns, some psalms, some hymns, at least one, I think, Nagoon, which is you know a, a wordless tune that was sung in a devotional setting, and it was made with you know electric guitar, trumpet, acoustic guitar, very lo-fi. It sounded like a record I would listen to, and it also had the added punch of being Judaically relevant, and um, not just relevant, but it, it spoke to it, it embodied the sense of the searching, you know, devotional actor in the world, and they were making something creative out of it. It really blew my mind. It still does. I listen to it with some frequency. So that was an inspiration to me. And I thought, you know, these guys are setting an example of a, of a path that I might follow. Mm. And I just started kind of goofing around with it in 2000, early 2005, or maybe six, I can't remember when, just as a practice, you know, I would open a prayer book and find some text I remembered and just start, Putting things to music, but I didn't really have a I didn't have a practice to speak of. it was totally random. I was selecting things at random, but they were songs liturgical hymns that I remembered being sung collectively in synagogue or at summer camp, and that didn't seem right to me because my memory of them were you know in being raised by many voices, so I thought the way to do it would be to get a psalm book which tends to be you know in the it is isn't the, the, the first person. The Psalms are written in the first person, mm-hmm. and um, by and large. And they are traditionally not exclusive by any means, but they're the kind of thing that are used by an individual for private meditation and, and devotional purposes. So I started messing around with the Psalms, which I'd had really no functional experience with or knowledge of. So it was a way of engaging with these texts and teaching myself something about this fundamental book and also potentially making something creative out of it. So I would just sit and open the Psalm book, find some, some English. I don't, I don't speak Hebrew. I can read it haltingly, but I would find some text that was compelling to me and I would copy it over. And then if the Hebrew sort of was singable, I would just start kind of threading melodies around it. And, um, I, I put together quite a lot of these, and it was just sometimes just a verse, sometimes a whole piece, but it was you know, not really with a mind of putting a record out of them. Um, I was really trying to make it more about the practice. and right. uh,
2: that's how it that's how it took shape. So you by my math, you are twenty five, twenty six, twenty seven years old uh, at this time that you're describing, and you're feeling disconnected from Judaism, which I mean curiously, You leave Kentucky and move to New York, and that's when you start to feel disconnected. But you're also at that strange age of, I don't know about you, but probably, probably, I'm guessing, kind of post-university college age, trying to figure out maybe what's to come. What is life? What am I going to do? I'm guessing. Do you see a correlation between these things that I have (laughs) maybe connected like this, like searching period for some, some of us in that period of life are in a searching mode and you're feeling disconnected from your culture ostensibly and maybe your family life a little bit too. Am I reading too much into that, that you reconnected at that point?
0: I don't think so. I think, um... First of all, you're you're being very gracious in terms of your math because I, I started doing the Psalms thing in 2015, so that would make me I would have been 30. No,
2: no, no. S- sorry, when you said 2000, oh, you mean when two- this first yeah, started. Sorry, happening. you're saying 2005 to seven. I thought is what you were saying, and you and I are the same age, so the math was easy for me to do. Um, <laughs> right. But I think uh, that's where I was coming from. Not the not this project in particular. Oh, I see. But what you what, mean. you're you're saying yeah. your first sort of glimmer of wait a minute. This is part of me, but I've lost it. What is this like? Am I correct that that's around in that in that age age frame (laughs) time frame? Yeah, that's a that's a very
0: yes, that's that's very astute because living in New York means that you can plug into all kinds of aesthetically Jewish things. You know, you can eat. Knishes and you can go to Russ and Daughters and you can go to Barney Greengrass and you can, heaven forbid, go to synagogue, which I think I did once the seven years I lived in yeah. New York. But you, you can, there are ways that you can feel Jewish just by, you know, being around lots of Jewish references, you know, lots of Judaic things that are happening. You can go see Andy Statman play at the Charles Street Synagogue. There, I, know, was it, gen-
2: I was gently trying to suggest that it seems odd to me that you would feel less connected to your Jewish heritage in New York and had to go back to Kentucky to really immerse yourself. That's I yeah, didn't well, want to put too fine a point on that, but that's where I was coming from.
0: Well, yes. And, that's, and so that's the irony, is that all this sort of surface or aesthetic Jewishness was fulfilling up to a point. And, but when I left New York, you know, I realized just how much, being back in Kentucky, I did. I went to Torah study here a couple times in, in town with my rabbi that I'd grown up with. But yeah, there was just a fundamental... And maybe those with those references being absent, I did start feeling more alone in my search for some kind of meaningful, you know, Judaic identity or activity or whatever it was.
2: Yeah, like and, the, you flip, know, the flip side would be you're in New York and you can't relate to the thing that you should be relating to, so to speak. Like you're like, I'm not connected to this culture, and this is. It may not fill you with shame necessarily, but a little bit of longing. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, and I mean absolutely. Of course, my Jewish experience growing up was it was mostly at a midwestern Jewish summer camp. So that's not mm. something that can be replicated in the context of New York City. I mean, actually, I'm sure it can, but I wasn't about to go looking for it, right? Because um, right. it obviously wouldn't have had its it's wouldn't have its efficacy that I recalled. But yeah, I mean, certainly, I feel like um, my identity as a Jew as a younger person was derived almost entirely from my very vague memory and limited experiences with the, the, the city of Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, where six generations of Salzburgs, well, including me, five generations of Salzburgs lived from the 1870s through the present. Mm. And that's where my Jewish family came from, and also my grandmother's family, who were the Blums. And I was sort of you know taken away. My, my parents were divorced when I was four, and I moved to Kentucky then with my mom. Oh, and I, uh, mm. I had this very deep, very profound Emotional and then sort of becoming romantic as I got a little older, connection to that part of the world. And so I don't know if any real Jewish activity or practice could reconnect me with the idea of this ancestral Judaism that I really craved. I mean, Judaism not in practice, but just Judaism in identity that I felt like I had had and lost in, in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Hmm. Uh, my dad's still up there. Um, and we're still close, but most of those old relatives, all of them, are dead now. So it really was sort of a an, an identity of the mind that I was trying to build, you know, not from any real experience, more from exactly what you said, a sense of longing.
2: Right. Okay. So of there are nine uh, pieces here on this record, is there anything you want to say about the choices you made in particular? Like for those who haven't yet experienced the record, that the track titles are things like 147 111 104 there's a song called oh you who sleep slash 96 so it's all numerical it is all uh you know enumerated the, the psalms are enumerated i suppose as a way of putting it do you want to talk about your choices here why why these ones stuck out and why you felt like they were the the ones you wanted to adapt uh so to speak for this record
0: sure these are... So the numbers, obviously, are the numbers of the psalms in the psalm book. There is one song, the one that you referred to as O you Who Sleep, which actually isn't a psalm, but is a finessing of a translation of a medieval Hebrew poet and scientist and philosopher, a very central figure in Muslim Spain named um, Yehuda Halevi. Mm-hmm. But everything else is a psalm. And they are the product of, again, my sort of randomly flipping through the psalm book and finding... English translations that I found compelling and that spoke to me on a spiritual level, on a creative level. um, They are some things that are missing. You know, and if you go through the liner notes, there are, you know, I I say what verses I'm singing. I've moved things around. I've definitely jettisoned a lot of stuff. You know, one that always comes to mind is I I do not refer to God smiting nations or crushing our enemies beneath our feet. I'm not interested in that kind of language has no, does not attract me in any way. So a lot of the stuff that I'm using is, you know, fundamentally the Psalms, the Psalms in a lot of ways are about a singer singing, trying to create new music for God, you know, sing a new song unto God. Mm-hmm. It's, and, and the Psalms compel us or enjoin us to sing. And so I, I've always been attracted to songs that are about singing because there's something, you know, there's a closed circle that I find very satisfying about them, that they are their own fulfillment. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're their own purpose. Yeah. Um, and because I was looking to make Jewish music, I was looking for fundamentally a creative experience. I could choose lyrics that just, you know, very neatly spoke to my desire, my longing, um, without necessarily having to bite off a lot of very intense sort of religious language or tropes. There is some in there, obviously. And I think some very beautiful lyrics, but the great thing about the Psalms is there is so much to choose from. There's so many voices to choose from so many, so much imagery to choose from. So what I ended up doing is, you know, there, these are the ones that maybe, you know, I, 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 love the translations i love the lyrics but also they worked best as songs i was able to put them together as singable songs that i felt like people might want to listen to i have other ones that you know maybe didn't work as well musically but also contain some wonderful language or vice versa maybe not so great language but i like the tunes but i I wanted to present something that hit both of those
2: am i wrong in suggesting that psalms are are designed inherently to be sort of musically adapted is that a wrong reading of i mean they're designed for all sorts of things but you're meant to kind of connect musicality with psalms right
0: yes i mean they're meant to be sung and there are you know there there are they do exist extant musical transcriptions of some of the ways that you're not from the time of the the psalmist necessarily right there are different you know different kinds of songs in the psalms that obviously would have you know different timbres and Different tempos, different—you um, would put different instruments to them or different arrangements to them, and they have been—they've you know, been adapted over many, many years, to say the least, in all kinds of communities. So I think that their their flexibility recommends them.
2: To yeah, that's—I guess that's what I'm saying. You're—you're you're encouraged to kind of adapt them on some level to context, even to your time, to messaging you want to put forth in the current, like a contemporary messaging almost. If that—that that makes sense. I know that you've translated them, but. They're meant to resonate beyond when they were first written, so to speak. I guess that's—I might just be talking about songs generally, but because <laughs> that's probably true of those as well. But no, there's some there's some connection there, which I appreciate. Um, you referenced, or I referenced, the song "Oh, You Who Sleep," which in the liner notes seems to be at least partially dedicated to David Berman. Is that correct? That's right. Now, what what is the? Mo- I noticed that it's. Am I right to say it was partially? Uh, dedicated to him. Can you explain that?
0: Uh yeah, I had the idea for that. That's the one sung in English, and that was it has a chorus. Or it was actually going to have a much bigger chorus uh on the recording when there's a there's an English refrain it says Be pursuing God in the river of those souls that unto bliss with radiant faces flow. And yeah. I had the idea of having yeah. a bunch of voices on that. COVID didn't make that possible. I had the idea of bringing people into a single studio and having them all sing, but I've had this song for a number of years, maybe three or four years ready to go. And I really wanted David to sing on it. Mm. Um, And obviously that was not possible. It's in part for him because I didn't want to make it just about him. I wanted, because he would have been a contributor. Also, there's a lot of, I mean, I find David Berman's work to be some of the most relevant and powerful Jewish poetry and song written in the past hundred years. So I wanted his, I didn't want it to be just about him, but I really, I really would have loved to have had him as a contributor. And some of the the lyrics to that song in particular reminded me of a great deal of some of the aspirational reaching in David's work.
2: I want to, I just want to home in on that because David's work has reached audiences that are not Jewish He's called his first project Silver Juice, so there was a context there. But his work transcended a, a Jewish fan base. It, it has resonated around the world to people from all backgrounds. But you said his work is particularly significant um, from the perspective of, of Jewish writing. And I just want your perspective on that. I, I know some of it comes through in, in his work, the spiritual or devotional aspects of his work. What compels you to say that about his maybe his entire catalog, if you will. I don't know if you were actually saying that. I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but what is it about David's work that makes it particularly significant for Jewish culture? Can you kind of explain that? Mm.
0: I want to say from the outset that there is a really wonderful piece written by Ariel Angel and Nathan Goldman in Jewish Currents magazine, which is a fantastic, politically, culturally speaking, um, very progressive, I mean, very radical in some respects it's been around since the forties. It's now run by all millennial editorial staff there. I love their work. And they wrote a piece called Kaddish for David Berman after David died. That says more beautifully, more succinctly, more eloquently, Mm -hmm. anything that I would like to say about David. And I'm, I guess I'm, I'm saying that first because anything I say will disappoint me because it's not said in the language that they use in this piece. It's so beautiful. Yeah. I read, I read that
2: piece and we should, that's fair. Let's, Let's, I appreciate you pointing people to that. But I just wanted... Yeah, okay. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. We sure. Were you going to say... I would know. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead.
0: I'll just say, you know, the, it's the... The narrative... Vo- not just voice. The narrative voice and the narrative being that is... Or the actor or the perspective that inhabits all of David's songs or inhabits David's songs and poetry. And it's not just one, obviously. The, the various narrative perspectives that appear in his work to me are, they're archetypally Jewish in a way that yet feels fresh. It, it feels fresh and feels profoundly contemporary yeah. in ways that sort of more hoary, you know, folkloric archetypes that have kind of become caricatures. Um, you know, I mean, not that this, I, I'm no Woody Allen fan by any means, but like the kind of stuff that's, you know, the David offers Jewish narrative and existential perspectives that are so profoundly more varied and rich and um,
2: multidimensional
0: yeah most i guess or just deep deeper and more profound than any than most any jewish archetype that i know in literature or song over the past 50 or 60 years i mean you think about i guess leonard cohen i mean leonard cohen certainly it's my favorite songwriter all time, I mean Leonard Cohen also kind of invented that voice for me, and David is in that tradition, so to speak. Without obviously replicating any of the kind of uh yeah, the creative perspective, the creative spirit that Leonard Cohen's songs emanate from. There's something so both so familiar in David's work, and yet such a relief.
2: Well, there's a there's a there's a tradition in comedy, I think, among Jewish comedians to really revel in sort of self-effacement or some sort of embarrassment, uh, I think, or, or whatever. I mean, it's just sort of almost making fun of it. Whereas I think some of the other figures you cite uh are kind of proud, proud of their Jewish heritage and proud to discuss it openly and call your project Silver Juice. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think in David's—I
0: mean, in multidimensional maybe is the word because what David's doing is— And maybe, you know, proud isn't the primary attribute, but it certainly is. It's not relying on tropes. It's not relying on these caricatures that are just so profoundly tired. And not from the not from the perspective of, like, anti-Semitism or whatever. I don't mind, you know. It's just that they're they're so boring, and they fundamentally don't represent, I think, what, say, personally, I would look for aspirationally from a creative Jew inhabiting the world and trying to make sense of the world. I mean, Woody Allen's art, if you can call it that, is totally empty to me. It's, it's of no interest to me. Right. And the way that David, yeah, the way that David existed and worked through his... Being in the world is a profound Jewish inspiration to me.
2: Well, I think for for all of his self-consciousness and, and obvious pain and, and struggles that David had, I don't think he shrunk from the world. I know that seems very weird to say at this point on some level, maybe, but I, I always thought that in his work he wasn't shrinking. And I think that some of the other figures you've cited sometimes would, based on their just based on their personalities and something. You mentioned Woody Allen. I mean, David had his neuroses for sure, obviously, I think, but I think he also was, he stood tall, if that makes sense. I'm I'm struggling to uh, articulate it, but I feel like that's what some of us took away from his work, is that it was bold and inventive and... There was assertion in it, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And it was funny in a way that didn't demean it, that didn't make a joke of it. It could be funny without being a joke. And that's what it could be hilarious without being a joke. And that's something that, you know, I think of the Eastern European wedding tradition of the badkin, who was like the kind of the jester who would come and he was the one who could make jokes at the expense of the groom and the bride and the rabbi. They were really existential, could be really sort of tough existential jokes about death and about infertility or about adultery or whatever and it was allowed to he was allowed to do it because that was his role yeah. um, and it was people would laugh but it wasn't funny and I feel like there's a demeaning of you know Jewish comedy takes many forms but the way that you know when you think of someone like Tevya, you know who appears in Fiddler on the Roof but also in Shalom Aleichem stories Tevye mm-hmm. the Dairyman and, mm-hmm. and there's such a you know embracing the absolute absurd and they really existentially fraught in a way that's both really sort of light and airy and profoundly heavy, you know, like yeah. very, very, yeah. very deep yeah. and heavy.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that captures David in a lot of ways as well. So I appreciate your insights there. I want to ask a little bit about these the collaborators on this record. I alluded to them earlier, and I'm hoping we can discuss uh, some of those relationships and, and collaborations but I do want to harken back to something you said about Will Oldham setting up a, a bit of an office space for you. How do you know Will? How did you come to know Will? And uh, and how often have you worked with him? Uh, I know that that's a long history, so we don't have to get into <laughs> every every iteration of that. But, um, yeah, let's just start there. How do you know Will exactly? Well, Will is, Will's
0: about, what, eight or nine years older than me. Um, so we didn't grow up together, though we were interested in the same, you know, punk scene in louisville i was came into the scene much later than him but Mm -hmm. you know i i knew his music when i was you know in high school and liked it actually i met him in a funny way someone had sent me something that he i guess it was about 2004 2005 he had done some interviews somewhere online and someone asked him what his favorite alan lomax collection was and he said the scottish recordings and the bahamian recordings Hmm. and I thought, oh, that's cool. Like he obviously knows this stuff. You know, he didn't say Muddy Waters and Woody Guthrie. Right. With all due respect to Muddy Waters and Woody Guthrie. So I just, I, I stored that away. And um, I was home, maybe, I think 2005, home in Louisville. And I was working. And for some reason, I remember this. You know, I had like a 25-pound Dell laptop, one of those like portable laptops. Right. That, you know, <laughs> um, and I was working at a coffee shop. And he came in and uh, he was just walking by me on his way out and I just said hey and uh, just introduced myself and he was like oh let's get together so I think we I went to he lived a block away at the time he was living a block away from my mom where I would you know stay when I came to town yeah. she still lives there he's, he's moved but and we just became friendly then and when I moved back in 2007 that's when he offered me a place to a place to stay a place to work and we didn't do any musical stuff for a number of years I don't think we did anything until maybe two thousand. 15 or 16 we did a seven inch together first for the paradise of bachelor's label but then it's been it's been coming then joan and i played on his i made a place record his lp last lp and then but last year will and i have been really hot and heavy doing a lot of various collaborations in addition to Psalms, we did a lot of kind of one-off things weird things over the past covid year Um, i think three different projects and he and his wife elsa and their daughter poppy have been some of our more regular guests out here during covid
2: kind of bubbling bubbling so to speak
0: yeah
2: yeah. did you invoke Hot and Heavy from the Seinfeld episode by chance <laughs>
0: no, no I just I've I been, been rewatching watching that though. show
2: speaking of Jewish <laughs> comedy and uh, I'm in that season and I two like last week three or four episodes ago was the Hot and Heavy do you know the one I'm referring to where Elaine's dating the jazz musician <laughs> no. Oh, sorry. No. Do you do you know that show? Do you ever watch that? I, I know the
0: show, but yeah, I don't know the reference. I'm not okay, eager to sorry. hear what it is, though.
2: Sorry. Uh, Jerry accidentally tells a fellow musician that uh, Elaine and the band leader are getting really hot and heavy. And Elaine blows up because she feels like hot and heavy is not a an appropriate uh, characterization of their relationship and that it gives the, the band leader the wrong idea. So... Then she's all fretting about it, and then he writes a song for her called "Hot and Heavy." Sorry, you said "Hot and Heavy," and I immediately went to that episode. This is a terrible tangent, but it uh, suggests a sort of intimacy. So you and Will have been hot and heavy, is what you're saying?
0: <laughs> hot and heavy, in the only in, the, in a platonic creative sense. Yes.
2: No, that's wonderful. Yeah, you guys put out uh, a record uh, this this year, is it? The time is blurring for me, and I own it for crying out loud! Did something come out this year that you two worked on?
0: I think it came out this year yeah the the max porter record
2: yeah that's right yeah
0: yeah that came out this year i got i, maybe, yeah, I got it
2: this year i don't know if that means it actually was released this year but i uh I, I ordered it and then it showed up and i feel like it was the year 2021 but uh yeah so that's great that's wonderful he's uh he's a wonderful spirit and a very supportive one so i appreciate hearing this now i bring him up not only because he came up earlier but he is on this record in fact when you talked about the um hope to have a, a chorus uh, of people singing on Oh You Who Sleep, Will, and I think Joan? There's There are some voices on that song, right?
0: Yes, the two of them that you named yeah, are the ones yeah. singing in English on the, with me on that song.
2: And they do kind of a round thing, so it seems like multiple voices uh, at one point. I don't want to spoil anything. Is that is that fair?
0: Yeah, there's there's one one of me, one of Joan, and then there are two Will voices.
2: Two Wills, okay. So let's... This again, another beautiful segue. If I if I say so myself, lots of interesting collaborators on here. Do you want to talk a little bit about them as much as you want, uh, even if it's just to list them? But I, I'm just curious. I know uh, some some previous guests are included among them, Spencer Tweedy, and it seems like you did work in a, a few different cities, and I think during a pandemic, for crying out loud, is any of this accurate?
0: Uh, it's, I, I will say that it's not accurate that I uh, traveled to any other city to record during the pandemic. Oh, Oh, we got damn close. We did the, uh, the rhythm tracks, the bass is played by the wonderful Nick McCree of Chicago and the drums by Spencer Tweedy, both of whom we've recorded with before with Joan and well, Nick has not recorded with Joan, but Nick and Spencer toured with Joan and me on our last tour in late 2019. The last tour we did before, before COVID and Nick and Spencer did their, Rhythm tracks at uh, John Hughes's hefty studio in Chicago in late February, so we just got it done before the you know right right before the I uh, see okay the gate slammed shut yeah so we got pretty lucky there and I you know Jim Elkington who is a very dear friend of mine and longtime collaborator both we've done some guitar duo records together and he's been instrumental in a number of Joan records he agreed to take on the arrangements which I think he did a very wonderful job with and he did the arrangements really were done all during the pandemic. So every everything was sent in remotely. All of the players recorded themselves remotely. Jim was able to go into the Wilco loft after hours to do some percussion and some piano. I see. Okay. Um but the one really the, the person who with Jim gets the silver gets the gold star is a woman named Noah Babioff, who is um, an Israeli singer-songwriter who I've yet to meet in person, but we've been in touch over the past couple of years. And I just I liked her voice, and I liked some of her songs, and I just sent her a note out of the blue a few years ago and explained the, pro- the project to her and asked if she wanted to contribute because I thought she has a beautiful voice. Also, she's familiar with the language to a point. I mean, this is biblical Hebrew, and she speaks modern Hebrew, but she would be able to correct me if any of my pronunciations were insanely off. Right. And um, she ended up doing just a really phenomenal work on this record. I mean, she, a lot of what she does is just, you know, unison singing, which I asked for, but she did some stacked harmonies sort of in an Enya kind of a way that I really, really flipped over. Yeah. And she, um, I owe her such a solid. She did a lot of work on
2: this. So it is a border crossing effort. I mean, I, I get what you're saying. There wasn't a lot of physical trespassing <laughs> during a time of lockdown, but this, this, it was a group effort from people ostensibly around the world, really, in a sense. Is that fair? Yeah. Well, it's a it's a lovely record, and I I've been really hypnotized by it. By the way, and I hope this isn't uh, wrong. I can't help but hear in "Oh, you who sleep," a little bit of "Old Man" by Neil Young. Is that am oh. I crazy?
0: I no help yourself. I haven't okay. heard that, but I I'm glad to. I will take there's, all comers.
2: There's that weird bridge part in that song where the strings come in in "Old Man." I mean, where it, before he gets to the, like the "Oh man, take a." there's just some some there with the arrangement and I wasn't sure if it was deliberate or not but again I'm Canadian so I hear Neil young in places that uh, he's not even there so that's what it sounds like this situation is no intention there
0: well no, though but thematically they actually have a lot in common in terms of the lyrics so I will I need to listen to that that's good
2: okay so I maybe I hope if, if I'm wrong text me message me just yell at me over those don't call me because I don't want to be yelled at Uh, by a real person. No, you can if you want. You can cut this out then, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is a a beautiful record. Um, Nathan, where can people go to learn more about this, uh, this particular record that we've been discussing?
0: That's a good question, and I don't know the answer. I need to put, I wrote sort of, I wrote my own, I mean, it's not really a a press release, but I wrote just an overview of the thing for the label, and um, I don't think it's, it might be on the No Quarter website. No Quarter is... My label, Jones label, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful support. Long-time support from Mike Quinn, who runs the label. And he might have my text up there. But um, they it's can on, buy the it's record. On
2: your, uh, it's on your Bandcamp as well, or it's on the Bandcamp oh, uh, yeah. description for the record. Yeah, the the the, the liner, they're not liner notes per se, but they're your, as you say, they're your kind of your press release-y album bio. So that's the information. But in terms of picking up the record, where would you like to send people?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, if they are in the United States of America, I imagine Bandcamp or No Quarter is as good as any if you don't want to venture out. But uh, record shops will hopefully carry it.
2: Yeah, okay. So the record is called Psalms. It is by Nathan Salzberg, so people should look for that. I neglected to ask you about future plans. It sounds like, again, you and Will are working together. I'm not going to say hot and heavy. Oh, wait, I just did. You are working together. You're working on some things. What else is coming up for you?
0: I think Will Will and I are done with our work. I think we've done everything we're going to do for now. I okay. look forward to having another invitation, but there's nothing else quite on the horizon. Right, Uh Joan, luckily, Joan wrote quite a lot of songs during the past year, and I really nudged her in April to record some of them before the baby came so we could kind of have those in our back pocket. And she said, oh, okay, we'll set something up, <laughs> and we... Went to our friend. We have a d- very dear old friend here named Zach Riles, who lives in Shelbyville, Kentucky, which is one county over. And he and his wife have a farm and, and they grow blueberries and asparagus. And they also have a recording studio. And it's a really phenomenal resource for us. And we Zach's done a lot of mixing over various projects over the past year. And that's where I tracked my guitar and singing for Psalms. And he mixed Psalms.
2: Oh, okay. And
0: um, we went over there in April to track some of Joan's songs with the idea that maybe we could get two or three done and Joan managed to knock out 13 over the course of I guess it was three dates so luckily we have all the rudiments of this record down um, and it all happened before the baby came so now we're soliciting contributions from various friends including Jim Elkington so we're excited about that yeah that's the next. That's the next. That's the
2: big. Thing the that's next big yet. project. Okay, we met, we invoked uh, no quarter and and their web presence. What about you? Do you want people to follow you on things? Do you have a website? These sorts of things. I have a.
0: Does anyone have a WordPress site anymore? I have a WordPress site that. Um, hey, I don't hey, 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 hey!
2: Don't you're disparaging me now? I have a WordPress site for crying out loud. Okay, good, good, good. Okay,
0: because I'm glad to know that. I thought, I, I thought it was, you know, as good as being, you know, anti, anti deluvian. Um, but yeah, I have a, I have a word. It's basically just a, just a listing of guitar tunings, but, um, you know, I'm on the, I'm on the various black sites. I'm on, Twitter. okay, I'm okay, on those things. <laughs>
2: all right. Well, no, that's so people can look you up and, and follow you to keep track of your comings and goings, if you will. Um, and the Lomax
0: archive is represented on all of, the mainstream social media, and people could also look at the Lomax Digital Archive if they like.
2: This is still an active pursuit of yours. I think we bounced around uh, eras, but you're still involved, heavily involved in that project. Is that fair?
0: Yeah. I mean, by the grace of God, I've had this job for nearly 21 years, and um, I hope that I will continue to have it. As long as there's material left to go, you know, to be cataloged and made available online and in the communities of origin, I hope to do this work.
2: I know the Woody Guthrie Archive and Woody Guthrie Center, I believe, are in Oklahoma. And I know the Bob Dylan Center will be opening there, in a similar in in Oklahoma, I think, uh, next year, twenty twenty two. Is there like a physical location for people to access the Alan Lomax Archive, or is it primarily a, an online hub? So, what we're concerned with is an
0: online hub. But all the physical material is, well, not, not all accessible, but if folks wanted to do in-person research, they can go to the reading room at the Library of Congress, at the American Folklife Center, at the Library of Congress to do research with Lomax's journals, to look at the original disc sleeves, to listen to material that is not currently digitized. They have everything duplicated to reel-to-reel tape It was done in the sixties and seventies. So you can, they'll, they'll, roll out some big Ampex machine that you can listen to tape dubs on. And, uh, I should say too, though, that the library has been Wonderful in digitizing and crowdsourcing transcriptions of all of the Lomax's field notes and assorted oh, wow. documentation. Wow, wow. So there's just there's reams,
2: digital reams
0: of documentation up available through the Library of Congress's online collections
2: of the Lomax. So their online collections. collections. Okay. Is it obvious or obviously wrong to suggest that the physical Library of Congress, if if and when we can visit things like that, again, uh, free? with a free uh, conscience and 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 whatnot. Is it in D.C. or is it? It in, is, yep. yeah. Yeah, okay, just just making sure. Okay, sorry, we've been bouncing around a little bit. I, I do want to ask you if it's permissible and desirable to feature a song from Psalms for people to hear right now, and I wonder if, if, if so, do you mind choosing one and, and maybe telling us why it came to mind? Sure,
0: let me think about it. Which one? It's hard to pick something that it would be, none of them are representative in and of themselves. But you know, why don't you go ahead and play? Um, you can play O you who Sleep and its sort of tag of Psalm 96. That's the one that, O you who Sleep being the one in English, based off of a translation of a Yehuda Halevi poem by Raymond Scheinlin. And that way you can hear the sort of voices and a full band and then it ends with the uh, just a tag from Psalm 96 the bit that says sing a new song sing unto God all over the earth sing a new song which is sort of you know fundamentally the spirit of the project and that way you can hear Noah sing you can hear Joan and Will you can hear me Um, you can hear more or less all of the pieces of the puzzle
2: so in a sense it might be quite representative of the record if that makes sense I mean it is a obvious it's a representative of the record but yeah, I, it's a highlight for me. I think it's a good choice, if I may. I take it back.
0: I think it is representative. Thank you. <laughs> yes, you're
2: right. <laughs> this is uh, oh, You Who Sleep, uh, tagged with uh, Psalm 96 by Nathan Salzberg from his beautiful new album, Psalms. Uh, Nathan, this was a tremendous pleasure for me. I hope you enjoyed yourself, and I wish you the best of luck with everything in the future. Thank you for your time today.
0: Thank you, Vish. And I wish you Godspeed today, um, serving the needs of your son's birthday.
2: <laughs> That's right. For those who don't know, my son is 10 as we're speaking. Happy birthday, Levon. Thank you, Nathan. I'll pass your wishes on to him as well. Wonderful. Appreciate it.
1: Burn, shake off the dew of light One day, wake like swallows soar and free yourself of time. god
2: Well, that was a lovely chat i thought with nathan salzberg thank you nathan for appearing on this the 630th episode of creative control which is part of the entertainment one podcast network and is available wherever you get your podcast if you can't find an episode you're looking for or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter you can learn more about this at my website, vishkana.com, which, as I may have mentioned, is a WordPress site. Please don't do anything nefarious with that information. You can like Creative Control on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter, at vishcreative, or follow me directly on Twitter or on Instagram, at vishkana, if if that uh, pleases you. You can also visit patreon.com slash Control to make a flexible monthly donation. A $6 or more grants you access to exclusive content from my, most of it's from like my back catalog, pre-creative control audio archives, Uh, I think I've got a, there's a bunch of the stuff already, which if you, $6 or more you can access it, and I think there's like an Old Will Oldham interview up there, Hal Willner, uh, Sufjan Stevens, there's lots of interesting, I think, interesting stuff there, Killer Mike, I think, I don't have the archives in front of me, but anyway, uh, you can learn more about it. Uh, at patreoncom creative control. Oh, and if you want to receive a creative control t shirt, uh, please message me on patreon and I'll get you one while supplies last. Thanks again to the fine Alberta record retailer Blackbird Music, which you can learn more about and place special orders at uh, via their website there, blackbird.ca. I'd also like to thank Pizza Trocadero, the bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario for their in kind support for this show. Thanks, as always, to my friend Jim Guthrie for lending me some music uh, for the show. You can learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you for listening to this episode with Nathan Salzberg. Please check out his album, Psalms. It is very, very lovely. Oh, and thanks to Will Oldham. Will connected Nathan and I. So thank you, Will, for suggesting this and uh, hope you're listening to this. I don't know if you're listening this far, if you listened at all, but thanks, Will. Uh, What was I saying there? Oh, yeah. Thanks to you. Thank you for listening to this episode, for subscribing to Creative Control, the podcast, perhaps telling your friends about the show and suggesting they do the same things that you do, which is listen and subscribe and spread the word about it. And that's it. I will talk to you very soon. I hope you're well. Goodbye for now.